Well, good morning, everybody. It is fantastic to be together on this Sunday morning. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Roland, and I'm one of the pastors here at Connect. And it is a wonderful privilege, really it is, for me to be able to unpack God's Word for us this morning and spend some time in the Scriptures uh, discussing what's on the, on, on the heart of God for us. Uh, if you're new, we are, now this is the fourth week, we're four weeks into a series in the book of 1 Peter called Unfaithful Unusual Times. And uh, it really has been a fantastic series, and I trust that this morning you'll be blessed as well. And so uh, for those who possibly missed it, who, who missed the intro to 1 Peter, just want to give a quick recap. Um, the letter of 1 Peter was, was written to a bunch of churches in a province called, at that time, Asia Minor, known to us today as, as, as Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey. And the letter was written by Peter to these churches after he found out that these churches were going through some severe persecution. So Peter writes to them to encourage them in the unusual times they found themselves in, to encourage them in the tough and difficult times they found themselves in, to remind them of who they belong to, to remind them of the call in their lives as God's people, to allow their faith to shine in the midst of darkness. He writes to them to remind them about their identity and the future glory and hope that they have um, in Jesus and the fact that it's not about this world and we live for a kingdom that is come and is still to come. And so he, he reminds us about the hope that we have in Christ despite the circumstances we face and find ourselves in. So that's why Peter wrote the letter he did to the churches in Asia Minor. Now, the section of the book we find ourselves in uh, essentially starts in chapter two. And, uh, and, and Jacob un unpacked this really well last week where he spoke about Peter's desire to have Christians understand their identity in Christ and how uh, we're supposed to be living out of our identity in Christ. These new creations, this royal priesthood, everything we do flows out of our identity in Christ and affects the way we do stuff and people around us in a positive way for the gospel. And so Peter, in that section, beginning in chapter 2, speaks about how our identity in Christ affects the way and changes the way we relate to government, uh, essentially saying that Christians should be model citizens. He speaks about how the gospel affects the way we relate to our employers as employees and how it changes the work environment, the fact that we're Christians. And then he speaks about how Christianity or being a Christian and our identity in Christ changes the way the marriage relationship works and our husbands and wives relate to one another. He then goes to close off that section uh, in chapter 3 by speaking to all Christians, encouraging every single one of us to relate and to uh, respond to one another in a specific way, despite the circumstances we face ourselves in, especially in unusual times. Peter says, this is how you are to respond to one another. So uh, we're going to read together, like I said, in uh, chapter 3 uh, of 1 Peter, verse 8 to 12, and uh, I trust that you will be blessed. Here's what Peter says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. Um, just a little bit about myself. When I was, when I was growing up, uh, I went to a school that was really passionate about its sport. And uh, one of the sports that I found myself involved in that I loved a lot was water polo. For two years, um, we had this coach. He was a really good coach in the sense that um, tactically he was brilliant. Um, when it came to training us, he was really good at, 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 at keeping us fit and keeping um, our water polo skills really sharp. But, 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 but it was really difficult to be coached by this man because circumstances often changed the way he responded to us and to people. Um, and, you know, it, it happened like this. If we were, if we were winning, if uh, things were going well, he was a very friendly, very approachable, very, very um, gentle guy. Um, for all intents and purposes, and on, on, on the outside just, just, just seemed like a great person to be around. But as soon as we started to lose, if we lost, or even if we didn't win the way he expected us to win, in other words, if, if, if we didn't do as well as he thought we were going to do, his attitude and his demeanor changed completely. He would ignore the team. He'd become unapproachable, quite angry, quite hostile. Um, often he would punish us with severe, severe fitness training, which, which had its benefits, but it was just terrible to be on the receiving end of this. And it really wasn't a great place or a great environment to be a part of. And it was just an example to me of how circumstances can so often change the way we respond to people around us and to circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. Now, I don't want to um, point him out and, and, and mention him as the only person that has had this issue, has experienced this. I've definitely fallen prey to the enemy in this area and been a victim of this, where I've allowed circumstances and situations in my life to change who I am, to, to sort of undermine my godly character and to cause me to respond to people in an ungodly and unhealthy way. And I've had to repent of that so many times in my life. And, and I'm sure as I'm saying that, some of you can relate to that as well. You know, in the home environment, um, when everything is going well at home, uh, parents have jobs, there's finances, um, there's food on the table, uh, everyone's healthy. Things don't tend to be that difficult and there don't really seem to be many issues we have to overcome when that's the type of season we're in. But, but as soon as someone loses a job, as soon as there's financial stress, as soon as someone's sick, those are all legitimate struggles we have in life, but, 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 but a lot of the time it starts to cause tension and stress and, and, and we start to function out of that place out of our sinful nature and out of our humanness. And, um, and we don't tend to relate to God the way that we're supposed to. And, it, and it's circumstances that change the way uh, we behave. You know, being part of a sports team, you know, I've heard so many stories about teams that are really unified and knit together. But as soon as you start to lose, there, there becomes, a, you know, there, well, there's this disunity, there's dissension. Um, there's like anarchy, rebellion in the ranks. And, and, and everyone's, you know, puffed full of pride and trying to do their best and, you know, become individualistic, um, you know, glory-seeking uh, players, regardless of what the teams, um, uh, regardless of what sport you're playing. Um, find that in school, find that in workplace. And as, soon as, as, and as soon as circumstances change, we find ourselves responding differently. When things are going well, um, our character seems to stay intact. But, but as soon as circumstances change, um, so does our character sometimes. And, and at times it seems like our faith goes out the window. And just personally, I've, I've, I've found that there's nothing like a really difficult time to bring out the worst in me. But here's what Peter's saying to the churches that he's writing to. Don't let that happen. 
In fact, in the midst of really difficult and dark times, that's when the light and light of Jesus needs to shine through you and your character needs to be brighter than the world around you. And really that's what makes our faith so unusual and it makes our faith so unusual in difficult times when we respond uh, in godliness in a time uh, that would otherwise suggest we should respond in the way the world does. And you know, Peter knows this. Peter knows that being faithful uh, to God and, 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 and being a faithful follower of Jesus isn't, about, isn't really about having godly character when things are going well and when things are easy. Peter knows that true godly character is really refined and shines through when we do what we're supposed to do when times are really difficult, when it's, when it's, when it's really hard. And um, when you think about the life of Peter, I mean, he learned this lesson the hard way. Um, he experiences, so he's not writing um, from a place of not being able to empathize and sympathize with people in this. Remember when uh, they were in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, things were going well, things were fine. He'd spent a lot of time with Jesus in weeks, months, and years before that. Uh, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is arrested. Uh, there's a bunch of guards who come to arrest Jesus. And Peter in that moment does something really ungodly. He whips out his sword and he chops off the air of one of the guards. And Jesus rebukes him for that. See, Peter's response um, was governed by the circumstances he found himself in and he allowed his emotions to get the better of him because he was in a really tight spot. You can imagine fear, you can imagine anger, you can imagine, you know, all these things rising up in him and his response is to cut off somebody's ear. And Jesus says, no, Peter, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Later on, he experiences a very similar thing where circumstances dictate his actions and his response. You know, before it was really easy to be with Jesus, to walk with him. When Jesus was, you know, famous, when people wanted to hang out with him, when he was healing people, raising people from the dead, performing all sorts of miracles. It was great to be associated with Jesus. But then as soon as it was a danger to you, as soon as Peter realized, hang on, he could also be arrested, maybe even um, um, killed for his faith and his association with Jesus, he goes and he denies Jesus three times. You know, circumstances dictated how he responded and, and, and what sort of character qualities came out. And that's why he writes to encourage the church, to remind the church of who they are and who they belong to and how they're actually meant to respond and how their faith is meant to shine in unusual and difficult times. And so he begins by teaching us how to relate to one another. Essentially, he mentions five traits that define us and strengthen us and set us apart as a faith community, especially in the midst of unusual times. And he says the first thing is this, we need to have unity of mind. Now, unity of mind doesn't necessarily mean that we all have the same idea and we are clones of one another. Unity of mind speaks to the fact that we are spiritually unified in our desire to honor God, to pursue kingdom principles, to pursue righteousness, and to live kingdom lives for the sake of the glory of God. Obviously, we recognize that we're different. You know, what Peter is saying here is pretty much echoed in Ephesians, or he's echoing what Paul writes to the Ephesian church when he says, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it says in Ephesians. The church essentially, Peter's saying, needs to function like an orchestra. Now, I've I can play the guitar, but I've never been part of an orchestra, but I understand there's like first chair, second chair, third chair, there's violins, there's cellos, there's all sorts of different things, and there's a conductor. And if everybody played their own piece of music or their section of the music at different times, however they wanted to play it in whatever key they wanted, it would sound like an absolute mess. 
But as soon as someone and as soon as the people in the orchestra play the instrument at the right time, the right piece of music in the right key, under the, the control or the authority of the, the, the conductor, the music comes together and it is beautiful to listen to. In a sense, that's what the church is meant to be like. Although there is unity, there's not uniformity in the sense that we're all different and Jesus is our conductor and he takes our differences, our past backgrounds, who we are, what we've experienced, what he's gifted us with and he conducts us and as we are obedient to his leading, so our differences come together in this beautiful symphony and this harmony that glorify him. In a world that's so divided, that's so divided, that so seeks to divide people, here's what it says in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on Mount Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. The second thing Peter says is we need to be sympathetic. Now, being sympathetic really just means this. It's to feel what other people feel so that you can respond appropriately to them. But here's the, here's the challenge, here's the thing that's so difficult for us in our modern day and age when it comes to being sympathetic. We're so used to uh, seeing so much hurt, so much pain, so much hardship that we sort of deal with that by switching off. Like a battle-hardened soldier who's seen so much death and bloodshed uh, that it doesn't affect them anymore. So we can also do that to our hearts. But this coping mechanism, and I've seen so many people do it, I've done it, right? The problem with this coping mechanism is that we don't just switch ourselves off in an isolated area or in a vacuum, so to speak. Switching yourself off emotionally uh, because of all the stuff that you see around you means that you are going to have very little space in your life to appropriately respond with sensitivity to people that you actually need to be responding to. Disconnecting shuts us off and leaves us with very little, if any, space to emotionally connect and to empathize and sympathize with people who are hurting in our community. And obviously this is not to suggest that we carry the weight of the world or assume upon our shoulders every single problem. The reality is the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus has come and already done that. Jesus has assumed the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's carried it and he has paid for the price. He's paid the price and paid for the sin of people and he's able to meet every need. We just need to be open to meet the needs of people Jesus leads us to and calls us to meet. What Peter is, is, is teaching is that it's our responsibility and our duty as brothers and sisters to come constantly into the presence of Jesus and to ask him for a heartfelt ability to sympathize with people and then very importantly to ask Jesus for wisdom in our sympathy and our empathy. Essentially, we're to come into the presence of Jesus and ask him to soften our hearts and pray the prayer that we see in Romans chapter 12, that, that, that we rejoice with those who rejoice, that we're able to weep with those who weep, and that we're able to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's what Peter wants us to do, to have to come and to have our hearts tenderized by the Lord so we can sympathize with one another. He then goes on to say, we need to show each other brotherly love. 
You know, the church is really meant to be a place where people experience genuine love. The problem we have is that the world has really tried hard to redefine that word love. And they've made it mean so many different things. And the sad reality is we can't control how the world defines the word love, but we can control in the church. What we can control is how we define love and how we express love and what we believe love is. And that definition has to come from Scripture and be what God says love is. In the household of God, we have to hold ourselves accountable so that we love each other the way that we're supposed to love each other. To love each other the way a family is supposed to love itself and the members of the family. You know, if you don't have family or if your family is broken, the church is supposed to be a family that you can be a part of, where you are genuinely loved, where, where, where it's wholesome and it's, and, it's, and it's good to be a part of that community, where people genuinely care about who you are and where you find yourself, the dreams you have, the passions you have. We're not meant to live in isolation, but unfortunately, uh, I've found in the modern church, it's so easy to treat church as, um, as a movie theater and not as a family. It's so easy to arrive at church early and leave early without connecting with anybody. It's so easy to switch on a message and switch it off without really praying for people or considering what this means. You know, and, and, and intentionally and deliberately building community however you can, improvising like Brad preached a couple of weeks ago and how to create and to facilitate and cultivate community. Church is meant to be a family reunion. Church is meant to be a place where families spend time together and enjoy spending time together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Romans 12, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The love being spoken about here by Peter is a real, genuine family love. And I just want to ask you this question quickly, and it might be a weird question for you, but when last did you, with purity of heart, make an effort to tell another believer that you love them? You know, so, so often this is received in a very weird way, like, what do you mean, tell somebody that you love them? And, and, and so often we relate it to that romantic love. There are different types of love. The love being spoken about is a phileo love. It's, it's a brotherly love. It's a family love. And I make an effort. I, I've been really convicted by the Lord to make an effort to tell people that I genuinely love, that I love them. We become so guarded and, and so resistant to receiving that that I think a lot of people need to be told that they're loved. Don't get told that. I really genuinely love the people I work with. I love our church community. There are some of you that I have a deep relationship with and I love you dearly. And I want to tell you that. And I, and I think it's about high time we started to tell people how much we love each other out of a pure heart. Not to, not to come across as um, something we're not. We don't, we don't say it um, disingenuously. We say it with genuine conviction and, 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 and mean it. And if you do mean it, we need to be saying, saying that to each other, telling each other that. It needs to be a regular part of our family life here at Connect where we tell each other we love each other. The next thing Peter speaks about is about having tender hearts. 
In unusual times, in times of persecution, we need to be people with tender hearts. And what a tender heart means, what he's speaking about here, is actually feeling uh, the, the hurt and the pain of other people and have concern for them in such a way that it moves you to do something about it. The literal Greek translation here is to feel generous in your belly or to be um, well disposed to one another in your depths. It's really the exact opposite of hypocrisy. To have a tender heart is the opposite of hypocrisy, where hypocrisy acts tender but does nothing, or acts tender and actually harbors malice and hatred. In Proverbs 28, there's this real encouragement and warning for us about the state of our hearts. It says this, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You know, most of us can be led into thinking that we don't have hard hearts or that it's not possible for us to harden our hearts. The reality is if we think it can't happen to us, it will happen to us. So how do you know? Well, there's a couple of tests you can perform, checks that you can um, apply to your life to see whether your heart is hardened. And by no means is this an exhaustive list. But when you hear about somebody going through a really tough time in the church family, when you hear about someone going through a difficult time or someone who's in pain or in need, do you give them a call? Do you take them a meal? Do you visit them in hospital? Or at the very least, do you spend time praying for them? If the answer to any of those is no, Maybe you do something else, and that's great. But if you're not moved to do anything, when you hear about pain and suffering and hurt in the church, chances are your heart is hard. Of course, we cannot respond to every need and every pain. And of course, there are times in our lives where because of hardship and because of difficulties and hurt and pain and suffering in our own, in our own lives, we're in a place where we need to be receiving more than we need to be giving. In fact, sometimes we're rendered um, you know, unable to give. And that's okay. But those are moments, perhaps seasons in our lives, perhaps long seasons in our lives. But, but eventually we need to move past that and allow God to bring healing. Um, and it cannot remain the atmosphere of our lives, this, this, this constant ongoing atmosphere of hard-heartedness. You know, God, God is so um, clear that we need to be guarding our hearts. It is so important that we guard our hearts. In Proverbs it says, here's why, because from your heart flow the springs of life. And because of this, we need to constantly be in the presence of the Lord, asking as David did in Psalm 51, for God to create in us a pure heart, for God to create in us a new heart, a clean heart, and to renew a right spirit within us. And the last trait that Peter mentions um, is that we need to have humble minds. What this simply means is not thinking about yourself as better than others or being better than others. It means not self-promoting. You know, going back to my water polo story, because of the circumstances we're in, um, because of the way that our coach was, um, what I found happening in my heart and what I saw happening in the team was, was that there was this need and this desire to promote yourself, to be better than the next person in the team. Because maybe, just maybe, if I was better than somebody else, if I could show them up directly or indirectly, if I could outperform everybody, then maybe I would receive some positive attention and they could receive the negative attention. And although we were a team and although we were unified in the pool and there was this camaraderie that existed there was this underlying need to prove oneself. 
And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with a bit of healthy, healthy competition within a team, but this wasn't healthy. The circumstances we found ourselves in um, was a breeding ground for pride and arrogance and, and self-promotion. You know, it was all about who could score the most goals, who defended the best, who swam the most kilometers in the pool, you know, who didn't mess up. The sad thing about this was that it prevented us from appreciating and experiencing the talents and the gifts of the other people in our team. And it might not have been obvious from the outside, but we knew it. There was this tension that existed. And unfortunately, if we're not careful, this sort of thing can, can happen within the church because of circumstances we find ourselves in. You know, we can, we can boast overtly or ever so subtly in our gifts, in our spiritual abilities, in our achievements for the kingdom. Because there's this need maybe in our lives because of circumstances we find ourselves in, sometimes we, we, we virtue signal. And what that means is it's just saying that you stand for something and, you, and you're behind something where actually you're not really, you just want to be seen to be doing something that's virtuous or good. We do that in an attempt to have others think better of us or to perhaps feel better about ourselves. We try to outdo each other with how much we know. I've been guilty of this and been part of conversations like this where it's really unhelpful. But because of pride, we, we get into these unnecessarily long theological debates, um, debates sometimes just to, to prove how much knowledge we have and to display our intellectual prowess. You know, that can happen. I think we really need to check our hearts. We push each other down to prop ourselves up. Like those in Luke chapter 18 who were confident, it says, in their own righteousness and they looked down on everybody else. Or like the Pharisee who stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Or like James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who in Mark come up to Jesus arrogantly and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at the left in your glory. I mean, how proud and arrogant is that? Or like the disciples in, in, in Luke, who are having a dispute amongst themselves as to which one of them should be considered the greatest. We can sometimes find ourselves in this trap and in this place as Christians. And Peter's writing, he's saying, don't let circumstances produce this in you. Don't let the enemy get you into this. If we're not careful, this pride can creep into our hearts and infect church community, rendering us, and here's the really sad thing, unable to see and to appreciate and to receive from and to benefit from Christ at work within the lives of other believers. Because it's always a competition. You're always resentful of when somebody succeeds or does something great that you could benefit from because it wasn't you doing it. If we're not careful, this pride can creep into our hearts and infect our homes, our schools, our universities, our workplaces. And what we end up doing is leaving nothing but a bitter taste in the mouths of people that we're supposed to be being salt and light to. You know, Jesus, in response to the argument that the disciples were having about who was the greatest, he says this, guys, he who is the greatest among you, let them act as though they're the younger. Let him be as the younger. And he who governs you, let them be the one who serves. He also says, whoever would be first among you should be a slave of all. This is the way it's supposed to work in the church, even in the midst of unusual, really difficult times. We're meant to be humble-minded people, people who don't think about ourselves above anybody else. 
People don't think the church exists to serve their purpose or that other people exist to serve them or that somehow we should be looking at them. God's word says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. If we're going to boast, let us boast in the things that show our weakness because then it glorifies God because of his strength. If we're going to boast, let us boast in nothing else but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then lastly, and this is what we're going to end with this morning. Peter moves into the space and he says, that's how you respond to one another. But even more radically than that, this is how you respond to your enemies. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. You know, when I was growing up and I'm going to be probably mocked for this. Um, yeah, I'll tell you anyway. One of, one of my favorite movies growing up was Rambo. I, I probably wasn't allowed to watch it, but, but I did anyway. And uh, I loved Rambo. And one of, the, one of the most famous lines from Rambo comes right at the end of the first Rambo movie, I think, when Rambo's commanding officer asks him why he did what he did after Rambo, um, excuse me, single-handedly uh, destroyed a corrupt village, a, a village full of corrupt people. And Rambo's response to his commanding officer's question is this, I did it because they drew first blood. Now, Essentially, what Rambo is saying is this. They started it, and I'm going to finish it. What they did to me was evil and wicked, and so I'm going to repay uh, wickedness and evil back with wickedness and evil. I'm going to get it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to get back at them. They drew first blood, which means I can go and take blood back. And Peter recognizes that this is in the heart of every single human being. That's why God speaks to us about revenge. He recognizes that if we're not spirit-filled, if our faith is not at the center of the way we, if Jesus is not at the center of our faith and the way we live our lives and the way we respond to people, it's highly likely that Christians will respond more like Rambo than like Jesus. But God's word and Peter is teaching us here, God's people don't repay evil for evil. We don't desire evil things to happen to evil people. We desire that the kingdom of God come. We don't repay evil with evil. We repay, we, we repay evil with blessing. Here's what the Bible says. But, but I say to you, Jesus is saying, um, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. This is such a radical and revolutionary teaching. Can you imagine if the church lived like this? Can you imagine if revenge was not part of our language and that we allowed God to take his revenge when he's going to take it in his time because revenge and um, justice belongs to the Lord? The entire world would come to know very quickly that the Christian church and the Christian community and Christians are different. It would transform our society, I think, if people loved the way Jesus said we should love. You know, this call to be spirit-filled and to have unusual faith in unusual times really isn't even about us. It's about God. It's all about God. It's about the personal work of Jesus. It's about His glory. 
being called to live this way and to display unusual faith or our faith in unusual times is so that people through our lives can see God's holiness. They can see His love, His grace, His kindness, His compassion, His mercy. And even though many people may not receive Jesus as a result of us living this way, there are some who will. And praise God for that. And if that isn't blessing enough, God says, if you live this way, I will bless you. And that's why Peter ends with this. He says, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. To what were we called? To have faith in unusual times. And because of that, we'll be blessed. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If all of this seems a little bit out of reach and a little bit unattainable and a little bit like maybe pie in the sky and just unrealistic, you, know, you say like, Roland, this, is, this, this really sounds good and as a Christian I've been desiring this, but it just doesn't seem possible. Every single one of us is on a journey. I want to encourage you with that. But more important than those words from me um, is the reality that God doesn't call us to something he doesn't equip us to do. God never calls his people into something he doesn't equip them to do. And instead of taking my words for it, here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, God has given us his divine power. Um, his divine power has given us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Everything we have to live the life that God has called us to live, we have in the Holy Spirit, in the person of Jesus, in the word of God and in the community of faith that we're part of. Luke chapter 18, 27 says this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It is possible to live this way and to impact the world around us. May we be a church of brothers and sisters who are unified. May we be a church of brothers and sisters who are sympathetic towards one another, who show genuine brotherly love, family love, who are tenderhearted and humble in spirit. May we have this type of faith not only in unusual times, but all the time for the display of God's splendor and the glory of the name of our King Jesus. That's it for this morning. I pray that you were blessed. I'm going to pray for us, but just to say before I end, um, there is going to be a Zoom room open. The Zoom room details, the, 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 the code and the password are going to be displayed on the screen um, now for half an hour after the message. Um, please come and join us. Uh, it is also going to be open from half past six this evening to seven this evening. So if you're watching this later uh, and it's before half past six in the evening, um, come and join us. Uh, we would love to minister with you. It's a place where we're going to get to pray for you. Uh, we, we'd, we'd love to pray with you to hear what's on your heart and to be able to minister to you. So, so go and join the team. Please don't be afra um, afraid. Please don't be shy. Uh, we, 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 we love you and um, we want to do what God has called us to do and that's minister to one another. Be blessed. Let me pray and we will close off. Father, I just want to thank you for this time this morning. I want to thank you for your word. And I want to pray that by the spirit, you would instill in us everything we need to treat each other this way, to respond to each other this way, and to respond to the world the way you call us to. May your name be glorified through your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Bye, everyone.